From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. For every horror movie that hits VOD, countless others end up DOA. Development Hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Korngut. I am the managing editor of Dread Central. I am also a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Today we are revisiting a favorite episode of mine, Carrie Fukunaga's unmade adaptation of Stephen King's It. Yes, this movie was eventually made by a different set of filmmakers, but there was going to be a very different vision of madness. And today you're going to learn all about it. The reason I decided to revisit this episode today is because of the very special guest who is featured. Emily Gagne is an exceptional creative. She is a filmmaker, a podcaster, a writer at Dread Central, and so much more. But she's also my creative collaborator and a very good friend of mine since I was six years old. And today is Emily's birthday. Happy birthday, Emily. This one is for you. So Emily, who are you? What's your deal? 
That's a very deep question. I am a filmmaker as well. I made a movie with Josh called Best Friends Forever, but uh, we've been best friends forever as well in reality. Also, sometimes I write about movies. I have my own podcast. It's called We Really Like Her, and we talk about women in film. I have an Instagram account called Final Girl Fashion where I put spotlight on women's fashions and horror. So please check that out. Welcome back to the pod, Mrs. Emily Gagne. We've had you here before for Halloween 3D. I think it was like our second or third episode. So this is, this is our origins. This is our our lineage. And I'm so happy that you could come back. I'm happy to be here. It's been a time (laughs) preparing for this episode. This is, this, this is a heavy duty topic. Oh my God. So much duty. Everything about it. (laughs) is long like the movies are long the miniseries is long the fucking book or audiobook is so long yeah yeah i you showed me like your progress as you were listening to (laughs) the audiobook and i was like oh my god (laughs) it's by far the longest audiobook i ever listened to it was 42 hours long wow Wow. And you know what? It was great. Like it, uh, I, I say that like I hated it. It was really good. I, I was always putting off listening to It and The Stand because they're so fucking long. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad that I came around to It. The Stand, like maybe one day. Yeah. Yeah. You've never gotten through it like as a book I've or never, as an I, audiobook? No, nothing. Yeah. I've only watched the miniseries, which actually I liked quite a bit. Yeah. I feel like that is still... A popular one with people not the mm. not the recent the stand we're talking about. <laughs> not the new one not the new one which i feel like kind of fell off the face of the earth like it was like happening and then no one's talking about it since then y- yeah it's not a good sign no i'm not interested emily gagne mm-hmm. what's your like what is your relationship with the it franchise like where does it all go back I feel like, like many people around our age, millennials, I feel like our first introduction to it was not actually the book itself, but was the miniseries from 1990. And I don't even mean that we'd all seen it, but like, and I don't think I saw it until I was a teenager and I was like renting movies from my local video store. But I feel like I saw the image of Mm -hmm. Tim Curry as Pennywise like as a kid and it really imprinted on me and and I found it very very scary and kind of like uncanny valley kind of scary you know oh definitely like just on the cover right of of, yeah of the double VHS yes so I feel like that was my first intro and then when I watched the mini series I think I was still pretty creeped out by him Mm -hmm. and I think to this day I mean I don't know if I'm as creeped out on reflection but I think like That was, like, a great example to me as a kid of, like, great practical effects in horror that, like, really worked. And, I mean, Tim Curry, of course, is incredible um, and can really make a monster into, like, a feel like a real living thing. Yeah, totally. Never saw the miniseries until maybe a couple years ago. Okay. I actually think maybe I saw the... Uh, it chapter one and maybe even chapter two before I saw the miniseries because it just it always looked kind of hokey pokey shloky like it didn't look very good yeah although it did leave a as you said like this imprint on our generation in a way you know the image of that clown is everywhere and I think when it comes to the idea of like fear of clowns a lot of the time it comes down to like fear of Tim Curry as a clown 
Yeah, I actually am like famously when I would go to like, this is kind of like Halloween Horror Nights in Canada, like screamers. I like I remember going to like a clown maze and like being kind of like freaked out by it. And I think I don't like remember being scared of clowns necessarily specifically outside of it as a kid. But I but Mm -hmm. I do think yeah, it comes back to this character and like, the fact that like, this is a child killing villain. Oh, yeah. I first I want to say thank you for the opportunity of talking about screamers because <laughs> people may or may not be aware that I, Josh Coringa, did in fact work at Screamers for one Halloween season. It was very iconic and bizarre. But yeah, they had a clown house, like a clown attraction. Yeah. And one of the weirder parts about it is I remember there was this room and everything was kind of like glow in the dark. And there were all these patterns all over the wall. And there was someone stationed in that room who had like a morph suit, oh, with the same patterns on it. So like they'd move around the room and you would just sort of get the sense that like something was scurrying around, but you but they camouflaged into the room. Mm-hmm. It was too much. Too scary. And I would say maybe that this Pennywise is sort of his, maybe his most famous property. Like his most famous antagonist, would you say? I also think Jack Torrance is pretty famous. I don't know if people know, like, if you're not a horror person, if you even know, like, that his name is Jack Torrance. Like, I feel like you would be like, Jack, maybe? But Pennywise is so... Like I said, like from kids to adults, you know who Pennywise is. And especially now that there's these these newer it's, I feel like this whole generation of kids now thinks of Pennywise as their like horror icon. I was actually like, while I was rewatching It Chapter 1 and It Chapter 2, I like was making sort of like a a rundown of like horror icons by the decade. Mm -hmm. And I was like, the 70s was like Michael Myers and Leatherface, the 80s, Jason and Freddy, the 90s, Ghostface, the two 2000s i'm gonna say jigsaw mm-hmm. and then the two 2010s pennywise absolutely you know? correct which pennywise do you prefer um what are their names so we said tim curry yeah and then we have a scars guard um that's bill 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 scars guard yeah mm-hmm. okay so you know i feel like i prefer tim curry because he felt a little bit more like a real being to me mm-hmm. and i don't But this is talking more about the makeup, I think, than anything. I think that Bill's performance in It Chapter 1 and 2 is, I think he does a really good job. And personally, the the problem for me is some of the CG that they put on him, especially when you know, like, if you look at, like, set photos, he was fully done up. So sometimes when I see, like, the, like, weird, like, CGI eyes and stuff, I feel like it takes away from what is, like, a really impressive performance. Yeah, totally. And I think that's something that these filmmakers kind of do often, not just with these movies, but we'll get there. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's like, you, you're not a good horror fan if you don't say Tim Curry, even if it's not the truth. So I'm going to say Tim Curry too, although this the performance has never scared me. And I revisited these It movies, say what you will about them. It's a scary fucking performance. There's that scene in It Chapter 2 where he has like a long moment under the bleachers with a little girl. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's... I actually think that scene is one of my favorite in, in the Chapter 2. Um, me too. Well. Yeah, but me too. I, that moment like really stuck in my, my head after I watched it this past time. Like I didn't really remember it. And I was like, why? Because I guess it's such a small scene. But mm-hmm. it's really atmospheric and it's and, it, and, they, and they take their time yes and also i think it helps that he's like kind of like shrouded in darkness a little bit so we're totally. n- we're not seeing all of the 
those effects. And there's a spooky lightning bug. I don't know. I'm Canadian. I should not have said that. Um, oh, right. Firefly. I forgot about that. I was just so... I, I really liked that little girl and I wish I could have seen more of her. I too. Although yeah. speaking of movies that kill kids, something like that has always resonated with me but really popped up this time taking in so much of this property mm-hmm. was Pennywise really feels like a Freddy Krueger archetype to mm-hmm. me. Especially It Chapter 1 really resonates as a sort of modern day nightmare in elm street with the tone with the horror with the villain it all kind of works on the same kind of levels that nightmare in elm street works for me yeah and I, I have to say i really like it chapter one i think it manages to be fun and pretty scary at the same time yeah i definitely saw the fred krueger uh parallels a lot this time i mean I, I think it's always been a little bit there but because they're both like child killers and and they only mm-hmm. come for kids mm-hmm. um, and they have like uh their rules are magic like they can appear as anything anywhere right they're supernatural That's so it. so i totally see that and there's also like a small town sort of vibe and mm-hmm. I guess also Pennywise has sort of like fun commentary. Like he says fun things, kind of like Freddy does. And there's sort of this like sexual undercurrent that I think mm-hmm. always comes through for me. From Freddy? From Freddy. And but also I kind of feel from Pennywise. And I, I don't know if you feel that like reading the book as much, but like when I was watching it chapter one and two, especially two, there's like the one scene where he like licks the glass where there's like a little kid in the, oh yeah in the maze and stuff like that where i was like i don't know how i could not read this like a little bit sexually. yeah that was bizarro today's episode is going to be focused on carrie fukunaga's it adaptation which never got made and ultimately we're going to dig deep into carrie's version as me and emily have managed to read the 2014 draft that carrie wrote with chase palmer for me the scary clown are those i think they were kind of from the 80s or the 90s those, they had porcelain features but sometimes their bodies were made out of beanbag material they're like clown dolls does this sound familiar yeah of course they are fucking scary to me specifically those the, yeah the porcelain clown dolls with the beanbag bodies i think maybe my dad dated a woman that like had a bunch of them in the 90s and i was like what is your childhood trauma that you'd want to surround yourself with this. I also think it was like something that a lot of like little girls had when we were young, like in the like eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. And I never understood that. Like I never wanted a clown in my room. Like I never no, understood. Not, there's no death wish there. No, no. I mean, I liked dolls and stuff, but like they were yeah. like, looked like humans, the dolls yeah. that I had, <laughs> yeah. you know? Absolutely. Yeah. No, that that is scary too. That's also in my Wikipedia entry. But I, I think in general, the thing that's scary about clowns is just like the juxtaposition between the friendliness and the like scariness. Like it's just like a trust thing that I think like I've always put my back up against. It's like if somebody's being too nice to me, like if I'm if I'm at a bar and a man is being too nice to me, I'm like immediately like, no, thank you. Like this, mm-hmm. what is going on here? And so I think with clowns, it's like this person is smiling, but like what is going on behind mm-hmm. them? You know? And I think Definitely. I think that's kind of confusing as opposed to some of the other like villains like a like a michael myers or or like a jason where like we can't see their expressions and they're kind of like faceless 
No. You know, like demons in a way. But they're not pretending. They're not pretending to be a happy-go-lucky friend. Yes, yes. That's the thing is clowns are manipulative. And I think that that's why so Mm -hmm. many people can find them really scary. And of course, like think about, oh, I haven't even brought this up. Think about the clowns that we saw that were like appearing randomly. Remember that like one period where there was like clowns that were just like showing up? Yeah, evil clown era. When Do you remember when the worst issue we had to deal with were evil clowns just randomly <laughs> appearing those were good days would you go back to that if yes yeah. although i don't know because then i'd have to face everything that was coming and i feel like we just got out of all that you're right you're right you're right so maybe not but Me- i do miss the era of evil clowns and i feel like it, there was a line in the sand though where they actually started like attacking people yes. or like acting aggressively and that's too much yeah i just want them standing on the side of the road in the middle of the night waving at me with a sign that says i'm gonna kill you, you know? yes yeah 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 that's, that's okay a, but that's what i want out of them don't come into my house don't no 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 no, no, no. no. Um, Emily, really fast. Mm-hmm. What's your relationship with Stephen King? Are you best friends? Are you lovers? Who, who is he to you? I think that you and I have different relationships to Stephen King. I was thinking about it earlier today. And I think that my relationship to Stephen King is mainly through like adaptations. I haven't read as many of his works as you have by by a mile. And I honestly have struggled. Like I tried to read the It book like a couple of years ago and I really couldn't get through it. I mean, that's not a great example because it's a very long book. I feel like my first encounter with like Stephen King was probably either through like the movie Stand By Me or Carrie, which is one of my absolute favorite movies of all time. I'm familiar with him through those adaptations and and because there's been so many adaptations of his work, he's such a like pop culture figure. I always sort of enjoy the sort of vibe that Stephen King gives off. And it makes me a little bit sad that like, it's almost become sort of a cliche in some ways, which we'll probably talk about when we get into the movies. But like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's other properties like a Stranger Things that are trying to like, you know, um, take from Stephen King when I think Stephen King is sort of his own entity. And, and the thing that we learn so often is that um, you can't, quite capture that exact feeling that Stephen King can evoke. You know? Yeah. When it comes to stuff like Stranger Things, it kind of feels like it's Stephen King cannibalizing himself in a way. Yeah. And it, st- and it kind of stops working. Although I famously am not a Stranger Things fanatic. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm the wrong person to go to with that. I think it's totally acceptable to have a relationship with King through the adaptations. A, there's been so much of them. And as you said, it's such he's such a pop culture diva that um, I think the adaptations are almost a genre within themselves. And there's so many good and bad ones out there. Yeah. And I, I think like maybe this is something you can relate to too is like the, I found it really cool that there was like this iconic horror personality when I was growing up that like even mm-hmm. if I wanted to talk to a friend or a parent about horror, I could like have an entryway with Stephen King. Um, they might not know about like, you know, uh, John Carpenter or like, um, any like iconic horror filmmakers, but they they would know Stephen King and they would be able to like at least reference something. If they didn't like the horror stuff, they might know about, you know, Stand By Me or like Dolores Claiborne. <laughs> I love like, Dolores Claiborne. I know, I just brought it up for you, but. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I think like it, I, I found it really cool that there was a successful horror creator and it like kind of, I found mm-hmm. it kind of inspiring and I know that he definitely inspires you. Yeah, and he like lives on the like shopper's drug mart cbs mainstream mm-hmm. yeah. shelf in a way that you know not any other genre person does yeah yeah absolutely 
Um, so before you and I get to the meat of the episode, which is the Kari Fukunaga adaptation that didn't happen, who is Andy Muschietti? How do you say his name? I think it's Andy Muschietti. Andy Muschietti. So who, in your words, Miss Emily Gagne, are Andy and Barbara Muschietti's? Um, well, they're a brother-sister duo. Cute. And um, they have made some horror movies, like Mama was one of their uh, major horror movies, uh, which also starred Jessica Chastain, who stars in It Chapter 2. Yes. Um, and uh, they sort of got involved in the It franchise a little bit later, like this wasn't supposed to be their thing, but they have now owned the It franchise, and I think it sort of led to them having a lot of other horror opportunities. Like, I don't think that they're uh-huh. going away in the horror realm. No, it seems like they're staying because of the success of this movie. Yeah, Mama seemed to be, uh, like, a pretty big success for them mm-hmm. out of the gate. And I got the sense that they were sort of given carte blanche in horror Hollywood to do what they want. I talked to a screenwriter um, a few episodes back that was talking about Hellraiser adaptation and I know that they definite Hollywood definitely pitched that to them and they passed. So it seemed like they were able to sort of pick whatever project they wanted. And I think they landed on this. I have mixed feelings about them landing on this. I do too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned CGI being not your favorite thing in the world. And I think that's something that they, uh, I think that's something that Mama suffered from was too much CGI. And I, and I agree preemptively with you that that carried over into these movies a little bit too heavily. Yeah. I'm guessing that I probably am a bigger fan of these movies than you are, especially the first, because the second one I don't feel the same way about. I like them. I would say that I actually liked them perhaps more on this recent rewatch. I oh, think cool. I think that I like kind of had really high expectations going into the movies when we saw them in theaters because I think mm-hmm. there was the weight of course of the miniseries that I was carrying with me and the scariness of Pennywise and I think that a lot of the trailers that we saw leading up to the release like seemed pretty good like they they yeah. really they really yeah. picked the right moments to highlight and they made it look oh, yeah. really scary and so I really wanted to be scared out of my mind and I will say that when I watched it chapter one the first time with you like I wasn't as scared as I wanted I to be saw it with you em. no really I, th- oh. I saw the second one with you for sure i know i i remember us seeing it together so maybe that's why i'm blending them but oh uh, yeah fair uh, enough yeah um so andy and barbara took over the reins from carrie fukunaga uh after he sort of got fired from the project another person that came on board was a uh, mr gary um doberman he came on to rewrite the script that carrie and chase palmer handed in he would also go on to write solely all of it chapter two so gary is the uh writer behind all three annabelle films the nun and he's working i think on his directorial effort or debut an upcoming adaptation of salem's lot and i think also andy and barbara are definitely more hollywood friendly artists than Carrie Fukunaga and Chase Palmer were. These are people that have like a solid proven track record making successful, accessible horror movies in Hollywood 
So it kind of makes sense to why Warner Brothers would would, uh, jump ship from a more alternative artist that they had in Carrie going on board with these two. And you're going to get what you pay for. And I think that they did bring a more mainstream outlook into these films that maybe in some ways worked and in other ways didn't work so well. I know that um, I yeah. mentioned I know I mentioned uh, Stranger Things earlier, but I, I like really think we can't talk about this without talking about Stranger Things because I, I really feel like this the first one at least feels very post Stranger Things and I yeah. feel like the vibe that they wanted for this movie was Stranger Things because Stranger Things was this huge hit. Like it was like mm-hmm. and people still are into it, I mean. Um no, maybe not as much as season one. So I, I think that they wanted to tone it down while still being scary. It's not, I said that I don't find these movies necessarily scary. There are scary parts. I'm just, I'm not like staying up all night after Mm -hmm. watching them, which Mm -hmm. is what I want to do. And so often it's what it deserves. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe a part of it is that I'm not a kid anymore. So like, I'm not the target for (laughs) Pennywise's, you know, Mm -hmm. um, fear sucking demoness. But Mm -hmm. I, but I, but I think that like, definitely they were like oh andy and barbara can bring us maybe like the stranger things take on it that we're looking for and i mean at the end of the day they did make a lot of money off of this first one huge success both of them were were big money makers but especially that first one and you were talking about that the trailer for it chapter one being really effective i could be just pulling this out of my butt but i think that trailer like broke records for like most viewed in a certain amount of time um so there was like a lot of excitement for this movie uh i talk on my last episode about how there's stephen king peaks and valleys in terms of um how excited the culture is for him and this was definitely at the height i think you're right it had something to do with stranger things sort of swooping in and sort of showcasing the, uh, everything Stephen King in a sort of accessible, fun way. Yeah. And then, yeah, It Chapter One did the same thing. Yeah, and they even cast Finn, Finn Wolfhard t- to yeah, be one of, one of the characters. My number one favorite actor, Finn Wolfhard, and I love his band, actually, too. He so is good. Canadian, so. Oh, is he? I mm-hmm. actually had no idea. Mm-hmm. Well, these movies are very Canadian. They're very, like, G- uh, Toronto, greater Toronto area productions. Yes, they are, which is our hometown. And it, it was is. quite the talk of the town. It was quite, yes, it was. quite the yes, talk. It was. And e- um, yes. Even to this day, you can go visit the, the house. Oh, can you? One. Where mm-hmm. is that? Pretty sure it's in Hamilton. Don't quote me on it, but uh, you. you definitely can visit it. And I'm sure there's lots of people that, that do make a pilgrimage. Oh, funny. And a, a, a place in the, like a location in the books, and I think in the movies too, is a place called Kitchener Ironworks. And there is a small town not far from Toronto called Kitchener. And that always kind of rang strange to me. You know, the miniseries also has a Canadian connection. It was like shot at BC. Yeah, very much so. So it's there's it's mm-hmm. creeping into our territory. It is. And I think a friend, of, uh, a mutual friend of ours worked on these films. Krista, I don't know how to say her last name. Krista C. If you're listening, Krista, uh, you worked on these movies. That's cool. 
Very cool. Very, very cool. cool in, in, in fact. But I think the overall vibe, like the small town sort of vibe of Derry, like is really well captured in the first one. And I think that like the movie goes big, but not too big. Like, the, mm-hmm. of course, the climax is is a bigger moment. But I think there's a lot of quiet moments in here that really add to some of the characterization. I just I just enjoyed the chapter one when I watched it. Like it, it felt like. Yeah felt like a, a nice movie. Like, I want to have popcorn watching it, you know? Totally. Like, a, almost Spielberg kind of a vibe. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's, like, little nods. Like, we mentioned Freddy Krueger earlier, but, like, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street being on the marquee mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff that I think is fun. Yeah, I think I just generally liked it. I, it I'm not, like, obsessed with it, but I, I really I have a good time with it. How about you? Yeah, I really liked it. I, I think the script for the first movie, thanks in part to Carrie Fukunaga, they capture the nuance of evil adults and, and the evil of, you know, looking away rather than speaking up against wrongdoing. It's noticeable that, like, the adults are not a very big part of the movie in general. And when they are a part of the movie, they're, like, horrifying. Like, think about, like, the pharmacist who's, like, a total Oh, my creep. God, so gross. So yeah. gross. And then there's also, like, Bev's dad that we see a lot of. Like, mm-hmm. all Eddie's of these... mom. Yeah, they're, like, kind of almost grotesque in a way. Like, the, they're all like, grotesque. Yeah, they, like, all seem, like, extra sweaty and extra, like... <laughs> yeah, they do seem sweaty. And, like, very... Almost, I, I said Uncanny Valley earlier, but there's just something, like, odd about them that make them seem sort of, like, almost surreal that I yeah. think um, really kind of speaks to how you feel as a kid about adults. So I think that this, this movie does a good job at, like, sort of capturing the, like, fear that, like, kids have of adults in a way and that you know adults can be evil too and that you should be kind of scared at all times almost it kind of has its hooks in this town and it's like in every nook and cranny i think it's the book i think it's the book i don't think it's the carrie fukunaga script where there's a a moment where bev's dad so uh, beverly the only female character in the losers club uh has like a really disturbing relationship with her father who is like sexually and physically abusive to her and there is a scene in the book where beverly's father is a child and he encounters it and it spares his life with the sole purpose of knowing that he's going to grow up and cause this person harm and so it's this very interesting like cycle of abuse stuff that it is able to perpetuate in a pretty insidious spooky way yeah Oh, I love that. That's definitely must be in the book because I don't remember reading it. It or wasn't. Seeing yeah. It. Okay. Interesting. Um, I I told I totally agree. I think one of the things that's missing for me in most of the adaptations of it is just this larger dairy factor like it's just like the the town the curseness of the town and we get little pieces of it but i think there's like i've always said i feel like i've said it to you too that i someday there needs to be like a dairy series not a mini series but series love that yeah we're like each like a castle rock but for dairy yes it's not just about the story of the losers it's about all the different things that happen in dairy because there's so many interesting stories that i think are in the book that are not brought or brought in some part to these adaptations, but we never get to see them fully. And I think what's so interesting about the story of it in general is just like sort of that this is a cursed town. It's not just about Pennywise. It's about the town as a whole being cursed. 
I'm trying to look now into which Stephen King properties take place in Derry. Mm-hmm. And there's a few. So I'm going to run us through them. Okay. Um, literary works. So we have It. There's his book Insomnia. Bag of Bones, Dreamcatcher, 112263, and Secret Window, which is Oh my cool. god, Secret Window. <laughs> I know. I feel like Secret Window is unfortunate because it, it, it gets wrapped up in a weird film adaptation. And I have not read the the series of short stories, so I, I don't actually know the quality of it other than the movie. Yeah. But see, there's like a couple of places you could pull from aside from just it, you know, if you made a oh, dairy sure. series. I'm just saying. I'm here for that. I'm going to make a spec. So It Chapter 1 was something important for us to tackle because the Carrie Fukunaga script and um, failed production was basically just an alternative to It Chapter 1. Hairs to Carrie Fukunaga's version. A question I wanted to ask you about It Chapter 2 before we move ahead is... um, what do you think about the queerness in It Chapter 2? Yeah, so the queerness in It Chapter 2, I think in the book as well, is messy. There's queerness scattered throughout the book in different ways, like the homophobes that kill Adrian at the beginning. And then, of course, Richie being a closeted homosexual. And if you're going to do that, like, I think you need to do that without having your foot on the brake. It just felt like the stakes weren't high enough. And it also felt like it was pussyfooting around the subject of homosexuality in a way where they just really don't need to be doing that in our God's year 2019. It almost felt like they were scared of going full homosexual themes because they wanted to continue to have a good relationship with middle America. Like they just didn't, they had to keep it subtle so they didn't offend anybody. Yet they also kind of wanted to have it in there. So I think I'd rather just completely having them scrap the Richie being in love with Eddie stuff or even just Richie being gay because they they offend me by only going halfway. Mm-hmm. It says to me, if you're too scared to talk about gayness, that you think gayness is you know, something to shield people from when it's obviously not. So yeah, the queerness to me was half-hearted. Yeah, I do want to see more queer characters in horror, absolutely. But I don't, Mm -hmm. if you're going to do it, do it. I think I was talking to you to be like, Eddie and Richie. And you were like, like before you had rewatched it, you're like, I don't even remember that that was like part of it. Like, like that's that's how insignificant that relationship is. And I, I don't think that they, for me, made it clear enough. I understand that he's supposed to be closeted, but they didn't make it clear enough that there was that connection that he or that feeling that he felt for Eddie. I just, we saw him like sort of talking to another boy in a flashback in it chapter two Mm -hmm. but we don't see that sort of connection so i it just felt like very sort of tacked on to me yeah yeah yeah. and then pennywise screaming i know your dirty secret it was like pennywise yeah and then there was like the fact i was thinking about how like when the deadlights hit richie and basically he's about to get swallowed up by pennywise it's sort of like a vaginal opening too where i was like i was like i was like that's weird i don't know if that was intentional but i couldn't help but like read into it a little bit about i love it you know forcing something on him that he Uh is not natural or whatever yeah or that would scare him yeah and so anyways it felt very sloppy to me and i i like the idea of richie being queer i think that that's that's interesting but i don't think it was handled in the right way here no and it kind of feels like gotta catch them all like we got a jew we've got a girl 
we've got a black person. Oh, and we've got a gay. You know, like it kind of feels like they're like trying to round out the spectrum in a way that they don't they don't have to do. And I think all of these sort of marginalized types are not dealt with properly. I'm glad that they're all there, but they're all kind of half-assed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree. I would absolutely agree with you. One moment that I always think about with the miniseries is that moment where adult Will is on his silver bullet bike riding you mean, it. You mean with, Bill? Oh, I said Will? Yeah. Because in Carrie Fukunaga's <laughs> script, he's Will. Anyways. It's so weird. Yeah. Yes. Um, correct. Bill is on the silver bullet with his like wife riding on handlebars. And it's, do you when, remember this scene? When does this happen? This is in the miniseries. It's like the end. No, of I don't the remember miniseries. this at all. Yeah. She's like sitting on the. What's her name? Audra? Handles. Yeah. I and it's, Audra. it's Olivia Hussey. That <laughs> it's we... Olivia Hussey. So yeah. hot. Um, (laughs) she i mean she's incredible obviously iconic black christmas i know it's just it's just a little bit hokier than i remembered it being made me go oh you know what we were we were due for a remake it was time it was time for a remake and there was never a proper feature film of this also is that ponytail there till the end yeah why 1990 why it's so bad it's so bad and it's often not in the shot and he looks totally normal if not kind of hot yeah and then all of a sudden the ponytail makes it into the shot and you're like i do really like that beverly is played by emily perkins as a child so that's oh my pretty god cool. speaking of icons yeah bridget yes yes and she's great in ginger snaps and i i feel like she is duke a resurgence i'd love to see her in something oh again. absolutely me and emily are um, our, our friends have a movie club during the pandemic so we can like hang out with each other online kind of yeah and I'm thinking pretty hard about maybe bringing in Ginger Snaps to Unleashed as I my love next that. pick love it yeah I don't know how it holds up though so if you do know let us know comment below breaking news breaking news <laughs> possible movie club pick incoming possible movie club pick um, but yeah I don't think I'll ever watch the miniseries again to be honest with you I just was like this was a lot of time this is <laughs> No, it's fine. I think it's a lot of time to invest for a movie that doesn't give me a lot, aside from no. Tim Curry. Like, I'd prefer to just watch clips of Tim Curry, like, doing... Just being a cool guy. Yeah. Well, clowning just, around. Just clowning. Just clowning around. Yeah, he's a clown, and I'm in town, and I am and I like that recap. So, I wow, is it was it worth it watching that three-and-a-half-hour miniseries for that five-minute question? You know it was. You know it wasn't worth it? Listening to a 42-hour audiobook. <laughs> See, I'm going to say that that wasn't worth it. That's it, where I was like, man, Josh <laughs> is putting in the time. I guess I have to put in the I time. I almost did it. I was so close. <laughs> okay, everyone. The reason you're here, the reason why you want to listen, is because we are going to talk about the Carrie Fukunaga Never Made It adaptation, which is pretty cool. And I think is the reason why It Chapter One was successful. So let's dive in. (laughs) So who is Carrie Fukunaga? Writer, filmmaker, television producer, probably best known for directing season one of True Detective on Ebo and for (laughs) the show Maniac on Netflix. 
he also did he write and direct the movies Sin Nobre, Beasts of No Nation, and No Time to Die. He definitely directed these movies, and he was fired from this production for being a bit of a maverick. <laughs> um, it's hard to know exactly why he was let go. He um, has been interviewed a number of times since, where he says that Warner Brothers were kind of scared that he was too much of a loose cannon. And that he was too much of an art house guy and that he wasn't going to be a team player. And he swears that he would have been. So I think that's kind of interesting. I get the sense that he was maybe too much of like a, an art house Arthur and probably being a little bit difficult, mm-hmm. which is maybe why they let him go. But I, I can't say for sure Z's. But he was working on this production. I think they hired him in 2012 to start development. And he was working on it until at least 2015. So he was in Dairy Maine for a really long time 27 years it's all cyclical was he actually like called a maverick like like is that no a direct no I, I use that word i use that word <laughs> it's um. uh, it sounds like and from what we know about him and the things that we've seen of 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 his like i'm not a true detective head or anything but like no, there really. is there is definite artistry to that yeah, show yeah. whether or not it's your cup of tea and mm-hmm. clearly he's got a, st- a specific style and mm-hmm. I also think it's not so mainstream. Like working with HBO, you're kind of allowed to do whatever mm-hmm. you want because it's cable. When you're making a big budget movie that they're hoping to make a bunch of money off of, you doing riskier things, even though people know you from True Detective and that was a hit, it's, it's, it's a risk. Yeah. yeah. And he was hired, I think, before his True Detective fame too, which is interesting. So they had him on board a long, long time ago. And this project was in development hell for like eight years. And a lot of people thought it was full-on canceled before they brought in Andy and Barbara and Gary. Me and Emily are now going to sort of go through the basic differences between the versions of what we saw. So what It Chapter 1 turned into under Andy and Barbara versus the It Chapter 1 screenplay that was written by Fukunaga and Chase Palmer. I'm going to start us off by saying... One of the main weird differences between the script and the actual production was that Carrie changed Bill's name to Will. He also changed Henry Bauer's name to Travis. And I thought, why? Like, why are you doing this? It was his brainchild to separate these two films into purely the kids and the adults. Because the book and the miniseries mix the timelines up where the kids' story and the adult stories are intertwined. This first version plays it first the kids and then the adults and i think that's really effective and another thing that they do is they make the kids era the 80s versus the 50s which is when the king version takes place so maybe will and travis were like more 80s Mm. names is the only thing i can think of uh yeah so there's more um talk of homosexuality in Mm -hmm. the Carrie Fukunaga version, but not necessarily in nice ways. The word fag is thrown around very loosey-goosey, which makes sense because up until, what, like five years ago, that word was thrown around fairly loosey-goosey. One of the big differences between the Fukunaga script and the script that we saw is that the Fukunaga version included one of the darker, scarier 
more political aspects of the book, which is violence against Black people mm-hmm. uh, back in the 60s. There was a Black bar in town, like people frequent it, called the Black Spot. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk us a little bit about this? Yeah. Also, just, just a note that like th- this script also uses the N-word, mm-hmm. which is not something that I remember at least hearing in these new It movies, probably because there's not enough time with Mike. I don't think it is. Like I think even when Henry Bowers yells at him for, for being Black, he says, get out of my town and stuff like that. Yeah. But I don't think he actually uses the N-word. Yeah. In, in this script, the N-word is used. And I mean, that's problematic in its own way, but it also feels like a little bit more realistic considering this yeah, is like ho- so. a small town in the 80s and these are like horrible, like white characters yeah. doing Same this. Same with the word fag. Yeah. To be yeah. yeah. Um, but there's there is this interesting scene. Um, you know, Mike gets a lot more play in this version of the script, and we also like spend some time with Mike's father, Leroy. Yeah. Yes, Leroy. And uh Leroy sort of basically starts telling Mike about something that happened to him when he was young going to this bar called the black spot and basically there was like sort of like a kkk like group that set this bar aflame and Mm -hmm. then leroy and his friends sort of had to escape and in their escape they happened upon pennywise i think that this script does a really good job at like sort of putting pennywise in the background of so many different like events which is sort of what he does in the book too but this scene i think is particularly horrifying maybe one of the most horrifying horrifying scenes in the script yes. to be honest yes um, because it's real life scary with the fact that there's like this kkk group but also yeah. it's like supernatural scary because we have this pennywise moment at the end so i think mm-hmm. that that's really effective and then also something else that we see in this version of the script is dick halloran who is in the shining also sort of has a cameo there's quite a few shining references actually in there the are script. a few shining references yeah so dick halloran if, uh, correct me if i'm wrong is uh Leroy the the father of Mike it's his friend and they're the ones that are able to escape the the club that's burning down and they witness all of these people burning to death in like really grotesque realistic ways yeah and I think like what makes this so effective is you're like this kind of stuff like aside from the fact if it or Pennywise is is part of the town of aside from this being dairy like this is something that could actually happen and this yeah. is this is the way that it is able to navigate and hide in these spaces by playing mm-hmm. off of things that could actually happen and manipulating yeah. people into yeah. doing stuff like this. Yeah, like he orchestrates the the white hood KKK types into burning down this building. Leroy says like they were under the control of the clown. Yeah, yeah. Which, Which in, in some ways you're like, okay, well, they're probably were still KKK type folks. Yeah, and they probably town. would still murder a group of people easy. Right, but like Pennywise was pushing them to do this specific that's what i'm saying is like but it in some ways there's power to this moment because it's like a little grounded in reality i Um, love that dick halloran makes it an appearance in this i think that's so cool yeah absolutely absolutely and i i think this script feels like very thoughtful in a way that i don't know that i felt about the end result of what became of it chapter one like there's like there's like these homages and there's Mm -hmm. these like these little pieces of 
the bigger story of dairy in this yeah so there's a scene early on with the character the child character of mike is having like a a vision like a nightmare vision because of pennywise and he's in an alleyway next to um his workplace and he has a vision of all of these people stuck in a fire and like he sees their hands trying to make their way out of the side of the door and he can't help them and then the door swings open and he sees the silhouette of the clown and that's as deep as they touch on the subject of the black spot in yeah. it chapter one yeah. and it's effective mostly if you've read the book if you haven't read the book i don't think you would understand exactly what was going on i suppose it's also like the idea that um mike's parents are are dead in it chapter one and two right they they are it's his uncle that he's working for yeah well like they show like um a newspaper clipping basically alluding that Mike's parents are crackheads. That's what they say in the movie. Oh. I'm, I'm not I'm not saying crackheads. And and that they died in this fire of being crackheads. Um, oh, so I, I, I didn't catch that. Am I am I wrong? Am I wrong? I hope no, I'm I not believe wrong. you. I, I absolutely <laughs> believe you. And so I found that to be a little bit weird and like a little bit racist in a in a way. Whereas I think in this Kerry Fukunaga script, he actually has a relationship with his father that we see on screen, like I mentioned earlier, and his father has cancer in it. It's it felt like a story that like was grounded in real life as opposed to sort of like trying to make it over the top. And again, we only have so much time. So I guess that's what happens when you have to split this like huge story into only two parts. But I, but mm-hmm. I think that like for me, the Mike character really stood out as more developed in the Kerry Fukunaga. Yes. Script. I agree. And they and he, they pull from the book more effectively because this is one of the more effective scary political moments in the book that they just sort of scrap completely from the first movie. Yeah. So I, I found that part like as much as it's very disturbing, very effective. And there's a couple other moments that are pulled from the book. Yeah, let's get into them. There's this pretty scary scene that maybe you can summarize about yeah. the axe scene. Yeah. So there's a scene in the book and in the Carrie Fukunaga script which is another flashback to the history of dairy where it goes back to like 1899 to this very old timey saloon and then there's a segment where a character by the name of claude is playing a poker or something and then it doesn't go the way he wants it and he slaughters a bunch of people with an axe in the saloon and it's an extremely gory really frightening scene and one of the reasons why it works so well is because it shows that the people not getting slaughtered like the bartender and other people around them like hardly notice it happening and you see that the clown is sort of just there as like the marionette master puppeteering all of this carnage and everyone else turns a blind eye and it's one of the more effective scenes to show you know like the disease of dairy about how everyone accepting of all of the terrible things happening around them as long as it's not affecting them directly and it's like it's a really brutal scene like you have like arms and legs sort of flying around and one guy begs for his life because he just got married and it's like it's brutal i wish that they had kept it yeah 
I mean, that would have been like a gore fest, which I think would have been awesome. And I I love that it's sort of the end of the scene is like he's killed all these people and like sits down to drink a beer that's left over. Like it's like, it's (laughs) you know, that's how much he's taken over by Pennywise. And Pennywise is also like sitting at a like a... A he's piano like right or something. Yes, and he's and he's playing the piano. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, yeah, it's really weird. Well, because in the in the it chapter one that we got, it's all just like information dump. This is like a library project where we learn about the history of dairy in a very traditional horror movie way, rather than actually showing some of this historical stuff in all of its gory glory. I was really taken by these flashback scenes reading this script. I was like, man. This is this is what I was wanting. This is what I was <laughs> craving, and so it makes me sad that they didn't put it. I understand why, but um, yeah, me too. There's a couple other things that were kind of interesting changes, differences between this script and what actually got made. Parents in general are featured more in this script, like they have lines mm-hmm. and sort of like scenes as opposed yeah, more to developed. Yeah, like Bev's dad is like a pretty ex- explicit rapist in this version of the movie. There's a scene where he basically you know threatens to rape uh bev and yeah. she runs away luckily um but mo- yep. bev's mom is also in this and sort of has a an odd moment with her sort of talking about a period and like like holding up a bloody tampon yes very weird moment yeah and that i have problems with bev all all the way through but i, I was almost like i felt like it was trying a little too hard to give Bev something and I was like periods and girls like come on we can do more than this you know what I mean like I like I get that it's I get that it's a connection between blood and the horror of of being a woman and becoming a woman but it it just felt like I was like don't know exactly what I want more from Bev but I I feel like I want some stuff that's not just about her being a girl girl, yeah Yeah. um that doesn't have to do with her vagina you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like so for me it's like I don't know how much Bev's mom really added to it i'm not a woman and so what i think matters a whole lot less but i found that menstruation conversation super interesting and super surreal and kind of twin peaksy and i i liked it i did like there's like another scene where the same sort of moment of bev in the bathroom where like the blood splatters everywhere and she can see it but her dad can't see it um and adults can't see it like there's a moment where there's blood all over the bathroom in the morning and Bev's sort of freaking out about it and her mom like walks in to fix her her face or whatever and mm-hmm. is clearly unbothered by this like blood because she yeah, can't, see, can't it. see it yeah and I thought that that was like kind of an effective moment and I think the yeah. mom says something like oh I always feel like disgusting in the morning too which and which she I she pats her face with the blood yeah yeah so I like that kind of stuff I I really I really enjoyed, but I, I did. Too. There's got to be better for Bev. If they ever make this dairy like series, <laughs> give me more for Bev. Make Bev yeah. like the main character of of the series or something. Bev is complicated, dependent on being sexualized or on being, you know, a walking vagina. You're right. Yeah, like I wanted to highlight Bev in uh, from it chapter one on final girl fashion and when i went to like google the character like there's like shots of her where she's like in her underwear you know after they've jumped off the the cliff into the water and i was just like man this is weird like do Mm -hmm. i i know that like part of it is supposed to be like oh these guys are like looking at her because they're like growing boys and whatever Mm -hmm. but i I just like it's like do i do i need that i i don't I don't know that I need that. So I no. I like specifically chose photos of her that are 
do not Both. show her in underwear. Yeah. Because um, she has some cute outfits in, in so chapter cute. one. You know, oh she. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I kind of wish they had picked Amy Adams for adult Bev rather than than Chastain, but it both works. We knew it was going to happen, though. Like, you I were, know. as soon as Andy and Barbara were attached, you're like, okay, Jessica Chastain is going to be in there. Yeah. yeah, so the, the menstruation moments were strange. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a moment in the, I think it's actually in the script where they say, like, they're talking about how it's scaring them individually. And they're like, oh, well, it scared it. It scared Bev with blood. And Richard goes like, yeah, because all girls are scared of blood. And Mm -hmm. Bev's like, you don't know bullshit about girls. It's because we have fucking menstruation cycles. And then they're like, ew. Yeah, I know. That's like, again, that's like a moment where I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. Like, you don't, you're pushing it down my throat a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. There was there was also just one quote that I wanted to pull from the script about Bev before we move on, talking about that sort of like initial blood scene in the bathroom. This is a literal line from the script. Like a demonic ejaculation, blood splatters the mirror, the wallpaper bouncing off the walls and covering Beverly. She screams and runs out the door. Like that's Stephen King, Carrie Fukunaga. Why demonic ejaculation? Like I, I love that. I understand I that you're like trying to conjure up an image, but when it's dealing with like a young girl, like finding all this different Pennywise content, there's a lot of like shipping Pennywise romantically out there in a shocking way like with who a lot of it is gay um who do they ship him with that's gay i don't know but it's 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 often gay for some reason interesting interesting although pennywise is female so because in the book he uh pennywise uh lays eggs so i like to think that she's a lady (laughs) one of the last major differences between carrie fukunaga's script and the one that we ended up seeing in chapter one is with stan the jewish character so there's this moment early on where stan encounters a nude ghost as sort of his vision of terror in the basement of the synagogue where he's uh, practicing for his bar mitzvah. And there's a moment where he goes downstairs and in the Jewish culture, there is something called a mikveh, which is a bath where women go to sort of clean themselves after they menstruate so that they can engage with the Torah. Uh, On the Orthodox level, women are not sort of permitted to touch the Torah at all, but if they are to be around it, it's not allowed on their periods. And so they have to sort of bathe in the sacred bath where Stan encounters a naked woman. It's very much like the scene in The Shining Mm -hmm. where Danny encounters the naked lady in the bath. So she appears and she's like, oh, um, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Like, you're going to be a man soon. And she stands up and she's like really disgusting and falling apart and like... Like, very much like the woman from The Shining, to the point where it may even be a reference. I'm sure. Yeah, you think so, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I, it conjured it in my head immediately when I was reading oh, that. For scene. sure, I, I love it. I, I love all of the Stan horror. I think they really did it effectively in It Chapter One with the painting mm-hmm. of the woman, because I think that's like a very common sort of kid fear well we'll you'll see something kind of normal like an abstract painting and it'll evoke fear and terror in you for some reason or another but this was good i really liked this version of events i think again i i I feel in general that like all of the 
kids were like almost more developed in in this version of the script Mm -hmm. and i think stan gets a little bit more like that moment is is really interesting in it chapter one but i feel like other than that like i don't spend that much time with stan and then of course we know what happened to him in it chapter two Mm -hmm. um so i appreciated this moment where it was also like engaging with his religion which is part of his story and in the script too i think they make a little bit more with his bar mitzvah like there's like they make that sort of like a climactic moment and then after that they sort of go on their journey to sort of try to defeat it in the book a lot of the fears that they face as kids are much more relevant to being a kid in the 50s like a lot of the horror that they face are universal monsters like a wolfman and a mummy and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and i think in the carrie fukunaga version the children fear stuff really interesting that actually seeps into what we ended up seeing with it chapter one in general i would say that the version of it chapter one that we have actually seen come to fruition is not that different intrinsically from this script like (laughs) the story is pretty much the same with the exception of you know these added flashbacks and stuff but aside from that like it follows a lot of the same trajectory and even some of the lines are the same so you Mm -hmm. can you can really see that this was sort of just rewritten by these other people and carrie and chase they do they get a writing credit for it and it's Mm -hmm. not just like it's it's like it's it's really their script in a lot of ways which is why i think the first one is so much better than the Mm -hmm. second one is that you do have that fukunaga sort of yeah they're there even though it is softer than the script that we read i think that there is an edge to it chapter one that is kind of missing from it chapter two i think the visuals and the direction are uh, consistent between the two. Yeah, I think I think it's just like the way that the story goes for me that is less mm-hmm. effective, which is not necessarily the director's fault. Um, so I think that we've really covered all of the major differences between It Chapter One and the Fukunaga version. Would you agree or disagree with me? I think so. Yeah, I think I think we oh, covered yeah. it, and we've ultimately covered um, the Lost It adaptation by Chase Palmer and Carrie Fukunaga. How? Do you feel? I feel like I've like beat an age old evil is how I feel. <laughs> Me too. And I think it took us 27 years. It did. Like we're not 27, but let's pretend we are. <laughs> I wish. Uh, we're, we're close to 27. Close we're closer enough. to 27 than we are 57. I respect a little bit like Pennywise is like, oh, you know what? I'm I'm gonna go into hiding for 27 yeah. years, and then when I'm ready, I'm gonna come back. You know, like I'm sleepy. I, yeah, take it a long nap. I appreciate. I can She's relate. She's like a cicada. <laughs> yeah, which is a relevant point of topic right now because there's a lot of cicadas emerging. Right. Shout out to you guys. Hi. <laughs> if you're a cicada, I plead, please leave five stars. <laughs> cicada review. Yes. Cicada cast. (laughs) Um, Okay, so that leads us to conclusions. Mm -hmm. How do you feel? Thoughts overall, Carrie versus Doberman? Like, do you wish we could have seen this uh, more traditional Carrie Fukunaga version? Or do you think sort of having middle ground kind of worked out? Uh, I did a lot of thinking about this before because I knew this was going to be a question. I... I prefer the script. I really was surprised by how much I liked it. 
And I think that I, I just really, really liked some of the character development in his script. And I appreciate that it came through in, in it chapter one, but it, I think there are some better moments in this script, mm-hmm. but a part of me goes, you know, if Carrie couldn't make that version, then I'm glad that he didn't and that it wasn't um, put in the wrong hands. Like, I feel yeah. like he would have done a really good job. And I also think in a, in a way that like not having going, not having gone so hard and so gory on this version leaves room for another even scarier it maybe adaptation in the future yeah like a series something that we forgot to mention was the finale uh mm-hmm. so the the finale was generally the same except there was a giant starfish i don't do you have anything to say about this weird giant starfish it was bad it was bad yeah, it was and weird. it was once again too long i think <laughs> i think there's lots of jokes actually in it chapter one and it chapter two that we've seen about like the ending sucks like it's a recurring bit yes, yes it is a bit and uh I, in some ways i'm like okay i get that you're owning it but like make it better for me then like it's never been it's never been done well on screen i think the ending no. it's never effective no and it's i because that doesn't have an effective ending in the source material and i think it's it's a it's just like too much is happening so Mm -hmm. no matter how you portray it it's gonna seem a little bit too much and messy yeah very messy and so i think that i will say like carrie script still wasn't able to stick the landing with the ending no um but uh so much of the lead up and even like the like sort of like tag that the movie that the script had like i think was like a little bit better than the ending of it chapter yeah. two that we saw. I, I think all of that like hokey, like jokey stuff about um, Bill's character not being able to write mm-hmm. a successful ending definitely stems from like everyone's criticism on King. Like I think it's like a well-known criticism that he faces is that King himself is unable to write a successful ending on his generally successful novels. And so I thought that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, well, obviously Stephen King was somewhat okay with these new It films because he does make a cameo in, in chapter two. That's so embarrassing. <laughs> but uh, I I would say like in general, these, the, the adaptations that we actually got to see are like not my favorite King adaptations, but like I'm not upset that they exist, you know? Yeah. No, I actually was surprised by how much I really liked the first one. Yeah. It's solid. I I would say it's like solid and it's nice and compact in a, in a good way. Um, yeah. I wish... And you were saying it's like classic horror. Like it's really iconic modern horror. And I think a lot of kids now are going to be like, it's going to be like a big moment for them in the future. Yeah, absolutely. This, this is their horror icon. Like this mm-hmm. is, this is their Freddy, you know? Yeah. And it, I think that's cool. Yeah. it It is very cool. Um, so in, in, I mean, I think we're going to see Pennywise like for years to come. I've seen him at like horror mazes, like, Mm -hmm. like walking around, you know? So, yeah. Although I will say, even though we should have said this earlier, I don't, I'm not obsessed with this design of Pennywise. Of Pennywise? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So trying a little hard in my opinion. I agree. I prefer prefer the design for the first film. Yeah. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. That I get, like I, like I said, you know, a couple times, it's just like, I think the simplicity of the makeup that they did on Tim Curry really is effective because the thing is it can be so many different things, but I feel like when it is being Pennywise the clown, 
Like mm-hmm. he should be a clown and should be like feel real as a clown. And I think that that there is a like you're saying too much going on mm-hmm. um, with his makeup and everything in these versions although i do kind of like that one small scene in it chapter two where he's like putting his makeup on his face i i found found that kind of interesting and i i have a feeling because we'll never know that carrie fukunaga would have gone like a sloppier way with the clown makeup on pennywise if he had actually with you directed yes yeah i think i think that could be said about how he would have directed it in general mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. okay so emily remind us where can we find you on the internet well if you just want to follow me i'm on twitter at emily gagne e-m-i-l-y g-a-g-n-e um on instagram you can follow final girl fashion at at final girl fashion um i'm happy to take dms if you've got ideas of of iconic women in horror that need to be featured and yeah that's pretty much it i'm i'm hoping to start um writing a little bit more about women in horror again so stay tuned but if you follow me there then you'll learn what's coming up next and thank you so much for going through all of this killer clown content (laughs) appreciate it and i i this was really fun so thank you for coming on the pod again i am always here to talk about horror movies with you i mean we do it anyway so might as well just like mic up and and record it you know (laughs) we truly do and you know what one of these days we'll float too you can also follow us online on basically any social media platform at devil hell pod uh so that's it for this week thank you for tuning in Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and write a review because it really helps us get seen in this vast, endless hell of horror movie podcasts. See ya.